Hi, and welcome to another episode of 2020 Trustees Expert Views podcast. And today we're going to be talking about buy-ins and buy-outs and, and risk transfer in general. Uh, and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Andrea Collins from Just, Michael Abramson from Homer's Robertson, and Rachel Utley from Adelshaw Goddard. Welcome to all three of you. Michael, I was going to start with a question for you, if, if you don't mind, and, and that's a, a big, big, big picture question about approaching um, the market. And I guess it's, it's really interesting because there are now different ways that different schemes can approach the market. And it will be great to get your view on what style, what approach suits what type of scheme, if that's OK. Yeah, of course, Nadim. Um, so delighted to be with you today. Um, it, it, I think there are kind of probably three key different ways of doing it. One would one is probably the, the default position for most schemes, which would be um, some sort of I don't don't like to use the word auction process, but almost because ultimately these this things do not come only down to price, but in, you know engaging with with a number of different insurers and um, through some competitive tender process. Um, another would be. Um, uh, working on the basis with a price target and then and then the third and, and obviously the, these could be sort of mixed and matched in different ways would be um, working on an exclusive basis with an insurer um, I think for most schemes most of the time um, it's it's helpful to have more than one insurer involved because I do think that that, that competitive tension is important I think generally to get the most out of uh, the most out of insurers and, that, and I'm not just looking at price I'm also also thinking about the commercial terms that would be available from the insurer it, it's really helpful to have that competitive tension um, I actually think in terms of the price targets even where there is where the, where, the, where where one has that competitive tension it can be a helpful thing to do really to maximize insurer engagement. Um, so to, to demonstrate, and I'd almost see it as a price hurdle rather than a price target, to say, you know, we we are prepared to do a buy-in uh, or, or a buy-out so long as pricing is is less than X, uh, which we think is eminently achievable. But but that, and then let competitive tension play out, and insurers will know that that's going to be the case, and um, so they won't necessarily anchor to that to that figure. Um, exclusivity certainly can make sense in certain circumstances and I, or, or partnering in some way with an insurer and, 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 and to sort of to, to be a little bit simple about it I think for, for the, the very small end and the very very large end of the market that's probably where it makes the most sense so very small end simply where it might, might just be harder to get, get, get engagement from insurers and a couple of other scenarios where that might make sense if there are specific say group relationships i.e. You know, the, the, the related, it's a related entity that, that one's dealing with between the pension scheme and the insurance company, um, or if time frame is very, very quick, there I think kind of a partnering basis actually with a, with a clear price hurdle, um, if, if one has some sort of burning platform could really be helpful. Thanks, Michael. That, that, that's really interesting. And it's, it's also quite interesting. You talk about both the, the smaller end of the market and, and the larger end of the market in, in terms of partnering. I mean, Andrew, that, that does, I guess, take me directly to a, a question I had for you. And fr from an insurer perspective, we, we do hear quite a lot as trustees that, you know, that there are benefits from um, partnering or, or going exclusive with, with an insurer. Can you convince me as a trustee that those benefits exist in reality? I hope so. Um, I think I think there's probably a couple of scenarios where um, that actually can be beneficial for 
um, for the client to, to work on that exclusive or partnering basis. So one is kind of touching on uh, something that Michael mentioned, which is that those kind of small schemes where, you know, wherever you might define that, maybe it's it's sort of sub 20 or somewhere between sort of 20 and 50 million. Um, in the market as it is at the moment, it is incredibly busy. I think we're, we're all aware of that. And you may struggle to get traction to get the quotation that you need unless you work on that exclusivity basis with an insurer. Because what the insurer is looking for is, okay, it's going to cost me quite a lot of um, resource and time to put together that, that quotation. I only really want to do that if there's a relatively high probability that ultimately that deal um, will transact and that it will transact um, with that insurer. So at, at the really very small end, you may need to say, look, I'll just work exclusively with you. That doesn't mean that you're not going to get good value as a, as a trustee. Um, in fact, as Michael said, I would very much encourage there to be a, a kind of target or hurdle price um, there below which you, you wouldn't kind of, or sorry, above which you wouldn't wouldn't transact. So I think there's still kind of, there's still value to be had on, on that basis. But if you're a small scheme, that'll give you a, a bit of an edge. I think the other scenario where, where it could be helpful is if you've got an existing relationship with that insurer. So maybe you've done one buy-in and you want to do another one. You've got the relationships already there. Um, you've got a contract in place and doing it on an exclusive basis could enable that to work very, very smoothly indeed and kind of reduce um, advisory advisory costs and, and, and get that transaction over the line very quickly. So that's another scenario where we might see that sometimes. And I guess in that latter scenario, if, if, if the partner insurer happens to also have excess assets that it does need to utilise, then you might also get a, a better deal out of it at the exactly. same time. Yeah, exactly that. And we just we kind of prioritize our existing clients. So we would be looking out for, you know, good matching assets for that existing client, um, especially if they were working with us on an exclusive basis. So certainly some good pricing to be had there. So, so Rachel, just thinking about the the, the other angle of, of, of buyouts, obviously schemes and sponsors are looking to um, to buy out so they can remove the liability and risk from from the balance sheet and from their responsibility. What, why, why therefore do trustees and sponsors need protections uh, to be in place once these benefits have been bought out? Good question, Nadine, because I think a lot of people talk about buyout as the end game. It's all done. It's all dusted, right? The scheme's gone. So what else is there? From a, from a trustee perspective, you're, there are still risks once you've bought out. Um, you will have bought out a known set of benefits based on a benefit specification and a set of data and unless you're in a in in the larger certainly not in that small category you'll need to be a larger scheme to have secured additional residual cover from the insurer any risk that you'll have bought out inaccurate benefits due to data error or legal legal risk if you haven't understood your benefits correctly based on what was actually legally due um, and the risk of spurious claims coming out of the woodwork that you need to defend um, or civil fines and penalties that can still be levied for past breaches in relation to the scheme the trustee and the sponsor if they're indemnifying the trustees can be ultimately responsible for those post wind up for a period and therefore understanding what risk you've you've secured with the insurer and what gaps you might have and what residual risk could exist is really important for trustees as part of managing that buyout process. 
that's really really interesting and, and and clearly an important area to look at and I guess it's tangentially linked, Michael, to the to the next question I had for you. Um, thinking about that that point in particular, but but also the more general points, how, how do you respond to trustees that ask you why they should move all the way to buyouts when they can stay at a buy-in, benefit from the insurance protections, and retain the the covenant protection from their sponsor, and, and clearly the 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 indemnification on on those risks that Rachel just talked about as well. I think I think it's a great question, Nadim. I don't think it's a question that gets asked enough. I think it's a very, very healthy debate to be had by trustee boards. Um, and actually, I think it's one that, but it's really, really important for the trustees to understand the powers that they have as trustees, the power that the sponsor has as well. So, for for a number of pension schemes, that that actually wouldn't necessarily come down to a trustee choice. So obviously the, the you know, buying will be an investment decision uh, of, of, the, of the trustees, uh, require consultation with one sponsor, but actually the decision to move from that point to wind up, maybe uh, the sponsor may hold the, 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 kind of the keys to, to, to that decision. Um, where it is held by the trustee or whether some sort of joint power, I think it's a, I think it's a really important decision to, to be had. I don't think it's quite necessarily as simple as just retaining both and kind of ticking along because ultimately if one is if one is continuing to manage a pension scheme then you're going to have to have sufficient assets to cover to cover the cost of running your scheme um and uh, you know be an administrative cost advisory costs etc so it, i don't think it's quite as simple as all that but i do think it's a very healthy debate to be had and i think for some pension schemes um they will conclude that actually it, it would make sense to 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 main to, to sort of stay in in a in a buying position. Now that could lead to to quite a kind of uncomfortable decision discussion with 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 the sponsor of the scheme, and that's where I think that the the powers that the sponsor has, and it could be powers in other areas, um, that they might start to use to to try and flex those muscles in order to to kind of influence the trustee. But I think from the insurer's perspective, in some ways, they don't really mind uh, buy in or buy out economically. You know, very similar, obviously, with buy out. Andrew is nodding, so must be right. Um, you know, so, so I think it's much more about the the sponsor trustee dynamic there. And I, I'd just add to that. I think that the employers are becoming more alive to that as a risk for them if they want to deal with managing the scheme fully off the balance sheet, specifically if there has to be a cash injection in to achieve the buy-in that would ultimately lead to the buyout. That there can be condition set in terms of well we'll give you that money but it's conditional on you achieving that transaction and ultimately if, if the power is not in the employer's hands the trustees agreeing that they will use you know trigger wind up within a certain period after that so I think sponsors are live to that risk and therefore basically that debate about how to manage that is happening earlier in the process now than perhaps it might have been a few years ago when people didn't think so much about that. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right, and 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 frankly, for schemes that are in that kind of position where they are able to buy in and 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 buy out, actually the the relationship between the trustee and the sponsor isn't and doesn't want to be in a position where they're having to talk about powers, and and so you answered my question there, Rachel. What would your advice be to a sponsor that doesn't want to put their trustees or the trustees of the scheme that they sponsor into an awkward position? Let's move on to the practical sides of, of, of binds and buyouts and look at the post-transaction period because that can be 
a lot more operationally complicated than, than most uh, trustees and sponsors think before they go into their first buy-in or buy-out. From your perspective, how, how would you advise trustees to ensure that the data cleansing period post-transaction is as smooth as possible? Yeah, I think that's a great question, um, Nadine, because it can be more onerous than, than trustees and, and, and their admin teams might initially think about. So I think a couple of things to say here. The first one, I think, as with many things in life, is have a plan and have a plan up front about what you, the trustees want to get out of that data cleansing period. So, for example, if you've got a, a buy-in and it's a contracted out scheme, what do you want to do, if anything, in regards to your GMP during that period. So if it's a buy-in, you could complete your GMP equalization and, and have that done as part of the data cleansing period, but you don't have to. But that's a decision, I think, to come prepared at the start of the transaction with rather than one to make halfway through. So I think have, have a bit of a plan about what you want to get out of that, that data cleansing period and, and what, what tasks are there. I think the other key thing is in, engage the right stakeholders, so particularly your administrators um, engage them up front talk it through with them and have a plan about what what they'll be doing and and who will be doing it have you got the right resource in place and kind of don't underestimate the the amount of work that that can be needed um, there and then I think the other the other thing is um, if you can kind of join in with the regular calls that will that will probably happen between the insurer and uh, the administration team or if that's kind of maybe overkill maybe join once a quarter or something like that just to kind of keep an eye um, on how things are going and make sure you've got early sight of any any issues so that you can uh, help to unblock those if, if necessary um, so yeah a few kind of things there that, that are helpful I think to make that as as smooth as possible one thing I'd add because I've dealt with advising a set of trustees who transacted with yourself Andrea and yeah. it can be quite important to understand what flexibility you've got if things don't turn out quite the way you'd planned and for the transaction I'm thinking about um, there was an intent to deal with data cleanse for GMP reconciliation but for various reasons the trustees decided that made sense to wait until they could do that cleanse as part of GMP equalization and so that effectively we agreed contractual variations so that we, we didn't have to do that. And, and if you've got an insurer you can work with and you've got some flexibility in the contract to actually adjust if you actually decide that something you thought you were going to do in the data cleanse period, you might yeah. not be able to, is quite important. Um, so that and, and just were flexible in the transaction I had and helped the trustees to manage that situation. Yeah, and I think on that, it's an interesting point, actually, because I think you, it, it's better to kind of think, you know, have a data cleanse length that's going to cover everything, and then it's better to kind of let go of one or two things rather than the other way around, think, oh, I need, I'm just going to need a short data cleanse because actually I'm not going to do anything with my GMP during this, and then kind of halfway through say, oh, actually, I'd like to allow for GMP rectification and equalisation, and therefore I need another 12 months, 18 months kind of thing. I think it's better to do it the, the other way around. So that's a good point. And, and Andrea, I'd absolutely agree with you on, on the final point that you made around um, actively staying engaged in, in the process. I think the, the most successful um, risk transfer projects that I've been involved in are, are definitely the ones where the trustees and, and or the sponsor have uh, stayed close and actively project manage that process um, so, so that both the insurer and, and the uh, the advisors and the administrator um, can, can kind of see that their stakeholders are very, very interested in getting the outcome that, that they intended to. So um, I completely agree with that. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you. The ones I've seen where, where a trustee's been sort of involved has worked really well. well. We'll always work to flag any issues, et cetera, with you, but when they're closer, it does tend to lead to a, a smoother and more efficient process. Thanks, Andrea. And, 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 and staying on the topic of process, Rachel, we talked earlier about protections um, and, and the importance there. What, what are the key issues that trustees and sponsors need to be considering regarding protections? And, and, and why is it so important to consider those early on in, in a process? I think it's important to consider it early, partly for the reasons we just discussed before, that neither party wants any surprises when we get to the end and, and there could be legacy risks and somebody needs to know where they'll sit at the end of all this process. And you might have a sponsoring employer that, that, that thinks that it's going to be completely clean of all risk at the end of this and a set of trustees who think they're going to be completely protected and you have to bridge that and, and understand what risks there are and where they're going to be protected. Uh, and the issue with that is that there are only so many ways that you can be protected. Either you have to purchase additional cover, residual risk cover from your bulk annuity insurer, if that's available, which will depend on the, the size and the nature of the transaction and, and the costs associated with that. You can insure that through the separate insurance market runoff and missing beneficiary cover, um, and or you can supplement that with indemnities from the sponsoring employer or its wider group. Um, in particular, there's quite a lot of pressure around some of those at the moment. The um, runoff um, market um, is, is hard, has hardened over the last 18 months and, and continues to do so. And therefore, if parties leave this as an issue to pick up later, thinking, well, you know, there's, there's some budget for some insurance, we'll worry about that at the time. Actually, what, what you might find is that people's expectations can't be met because that insurance might not give you the terms or the level of cover that, that people are expecting or require. And therefore thinking about that earlier in the process so that you can discuss any options with the bulk annuity insurer or with the employer about what protections they might be able to supplement and how you can manage that and indeed budget for the cost because the insurance, if you do purchase it, might be more than had been anticipated. It's really important to have early in the process. Thank you, Rachel. Um, and Michael, I just want to shift the conversation a little bit um, kind of back up to that. The, the, the kind of tactics and approach to the market. Um, and I guess, you know, some schemes are going to be in a position where they've got to consider whether they should be going and sponsors whether whether they should be going for um, a series of buy-ins or, or going straight to a to a single buy-in. I just hoped you could talk to us about how to how to make the judgment between those two those two options. Sure. So so I, I think let's let's kind of narrow ourselves to let's assume that buyout is the objective um, to kind of simplify the question a bit and say well actually if you if you if you if you want to get to buyout or, or to a fully bought in position um, are you better off just waiting until you can can afford to do that do it in one or look at a series of buyouts over time um, and I think a lot of that will depend on how on the demographic profile within the pension scheme um on the shape of the assets so the assets may not may not really support um a, a partial buy-in strategy um and an investment is going to be key uh so to, to make sure that that actually this pension scheme's got got sufficient liquidity um that it's not going to constrain the investment strategy for the residual part of the pension scheme um what, one of the key I guess the figure advantages around partial buy-in is that if a, if buyout is the is the end objective, 
then you are locking down part of that the, the buyout pricing risk and i think it, not so much over the, clearly there is volatility over the over the short medium term around around buyout pricing i think over the very long term there will be significant pressures on buyout pricing so i think for, it, for schemes to be able to and that's really just from the kind of the groundswell of demand from pension schemes um which is probably music to andrew's ears um but so, so i think that that's that's an advantage um, and then I think also that, that also is also, uh, you know, by doing that, you're able to take advantage of, of buying pricing at particular opportune times. Um, you've you've gone through the process, and therefore you're, you're sort of it, it's much easier for a trustee board to take advantage if there are, if there are those pricing opportunities. They could be, as Andrew has mentioned already, with existing insurers. It could just be some sort of market uh, market market shift uh, that that creates some opportunity. Um, on the flip side, I think there are certain things that um, can, at least you need to think very carefully with, with a partial buying strategy, particularly if it's going to involve different insurers. So, and, and I'd say even more so for smaller pension schemes that don't have such strong governance support, you know, just bear in mind, you're going to have to go through, if, you, if your end objective is buyout, you're going to have to go through a buyout process with each of those insurers. Um, if you're going to, and, and think about the member experience as well. So make sure you know are are your members going to going to end up with different different factors, uh, for example, that that might be applicable. Insurers won't won't commit to use kind of scheme factors; they'll use their own standard factors. Um, so think make sure that that you think about the member experience. And I suppose in the context of buyout, that's much simpler if you just wait and do the buyout in one go. Um, there could be some buying sort of buying power uh, for some schemes if they if they wait for buyout. Um, you know, you've just got a little bit more purchasing power. Rachel spoke about kind of risks and and uh, around buyout and where those how those sit. If you're looking to secure those from a bulk annuity provider through a kind of residual risk cover, then that's typically much easier done if it's all packaged as part of one buyout. Quite tricky to if you think about placing some of it, especially if you if you if you're using multiple insurers to kind of to to, to navigate that through through a partial buying route. So I think. In some ways, it's horses for courses, and it's going to be there's not going to be one simplistic answer as to which is better. But those, are, I think, are some of the key things that that, that need to be thought through. That that's really helpful, and I'm really glad you touched on the the member experience, the member journey, because it, it, it is quite easy to 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 forget about. Ironically, being on on the other side of those policies when you're trying to transact a, a, a big deal, but it's absolutely critical and is really central to what we're trying to do here at, at the end of the day. So, no, that, that that's really useful. Um, and uh, Andrea, I guess uh, I kind of also wanted to talk about timing, um, and and really talk to you about or ask you a question about what, what, when's the best time to approach the bulk annuity market if if you're a pension fund looking to to do a buy-in or, or a buy-out and, and really importantly does it does it vary by scheme size yeah so in my um uh, view but you know michael rachel might have views on this as well i think the kind of seasonality thing that used to exist in the bulk annuity market is not such a factor anymore i think that's fallen away a bit probably existed still a little bit so i think for from my perspective it's more about coming to the market when it's the right time for the scheme so um i think you can't really in this busy market you can't really come to the market just to kind of see get a feel for where pricing is and whether you might be able to 
um, afford to transact or not. I think you need to come ready and willing to transact it, obviously, if if the price and the other the other kind of conditions are right. So I guess what I mean by that is things like, you know, your, your data should be uh, in, in good shape and, and, and ready. Your benefit specification should ideally be legally reviewed. Um, in an ideal world, you'd have removed um, the kind of any discretions in, in the benefit specification. Uh, having your governance kind of in place um, so you know how you're going to make decisions, who's going to make decisions and, and ideally when and a, and a time frame and, and plan clearly set out. Will it be a one round process, two round process, that that kind of thing. So so when you're kind of ready to to transact, I would say would be the, the right time to come to the market and not before. Having said that, I would kind of say that engaging early is a good thing. So engaging with um, advisors, your EBC, et cetera, even engaging with with an insurer, um, you know, happy to to chat directly to, to trustees um, just on an informal basis, you know, this is what we've got here. This is what we're playing with. What do you think about this? What do you think about that would, would be a good thing to do. But in terms of approaching the market, I would say be be ready and willing to to transact um, at the point that you that you approach. Um, does it vary by smaller scheme by by size of scheme? I think maybe a bit in that I think smaller schemes have probably got a slightly higher hurdle to um, get over. Uh, to make themselves uh, attractive um, and actually it's possibly interesting to note we've done a few um, transactions this year that kind of pretty small in uh, in the grand scheme of things so kind of you know sub, sub 10 million but importantly those schemes have come to market being ready to um, transact and ready to finalize their premium so um, we haven't even done a data cleansing period post-transaction. We've gone straight from kind of contract signing to pretty much individual policies within a matter of months because they were they were completely ready. So all their marital data uh, and spouse data was was completely um, uh, up up to date, and and they were they were ready to go. You know, benefit specification was was completely um, agreed, etc. So that from a from a smaller that's the kind of readiness that, that we might be looking at in this level of a, of a busy market um, and made those schemes kind of really stand out and very attractive to us if i might add nadim i'd just say i, I totally agree don't you know don't, don't engage with the market before you're ready to do so uh, and you will always get better market engagement that way there will always be certain exceptions to that if, if you've kind of got some sort of burning platform off and if it's say from a sponsor perspective it, to, to, to look at buy out some sort of corporate activity yeah. um and as trustees that might present you you with an opportunity um the, the other thing i'd say though is the, the point at which you're ready may not be the best point to engage with the market Mm -hmm. So you, you need to, you know, speak, speak to speak to those who are close to the market and um, your, 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 your consultants who, who will advise you on that. And it could be that actually, depending on the size of scheme you are and depending on where appetite is from different insurers and um, that it's worth waiting a little time before before kind of before engaging just to make sure that you, you maximize um, maximize competitive attention. Yeah, completely agree with that. That, that that's really really useful from from both of you actually so thank you for that and actually michael the the, the response that you've just um added there was tangential to or very very close to the the question i was going to put back to to andrea actually and earlier on michael you were talking about schemes that 
have chosen to go down a series of buy-ins and and the value that can be accessed by um doing that but also getting the timing right on on on, on the deal and uh, andrew i mean that, that's a slightly different process isn't it because that schemes are not going to come to you before they're ready but they might not want to execute straight away they might want to kind of work with you as an insurer to to ensure that they get the best value how how, how do you enable that for schemes that have chosen to go down that path yeah i think in that case it's probably a case of um working the trustees working with their advisors and um with us obviously the advisors will will approach us and and make us aware that you know we've got we've got this case here that's um you know keen to transact everything's lined up and 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 ready and we can kind of talk um either you know between all the parties or or between us and the trustees as to when might be the best the best time to do that as michael says just because you're ready it's not necessarily the right time um to come to the market you know at, at a certain point all the insurers will um, probably get to a point where they just don't have the capacity to do any more um, transactions for the year. You know, re resources uh, key and in and in you know in demand. So you might say actually at the moment we we can't support this, but this is a you know a great transaction that we'd like to be involved in. You know, let's let's wait until at this point um, when when it's a, a better point for all parties to to work. Thanks, Andrea. Um, so just, just looking at time, we've probably got time for one, one more question. And Rachel, I was going to, you'll remember nine months ago when we did a podcast, we talked about GMP equalisation. And nine months later, I'm, I'm going to ask you about GMP equalisation in the context of, of a buyout. And, and in particular, when, when you're looking at GMP equalisation, when you're looking at GMP equalisation in relation to past transfers, are there any ways to manage that process in, efficient, in an efficient way um, in order to avoid delaying the completion of of of, a, of the wind up, um, it's a good question because I've had a number of schemes who are in the process of grappling with with that. Obviously, from a buyout perspective, it shouldn't impact on on timing. Most um, insurers, uh, even if they offer you residual risk cover, will not offer cover for past transfers although whether that will change and whether there'll be mechanisms that will come to, to the market to, to deal with this issue, who knows, but eff effectively this will be one of those residual risks left with the trustees to manage before, by, before they can complete the wind up. And the issue with that is, especially if there is a desire to have that, that scheme wound up quickly and off the balance sheet from a corporate perspective, how you can do that when it's, it can be potentially a, a time-consuming exercise to go back and look at all past transfers the scheme has had since 1990 and understand what data you've got to establish whether you can actually understand if a top-up is due and how to calculate that. So in terms of how to manage that efficiently, to some degree, it will depend on the nature of, of that scheme and its data and how available that information is. But in terms of once you've established what you've got, in terms of ways to manage that efficiently, there are options in terms of reducing the time and being able to wind up faster, like looking at whether the trustees can justify paying the top up to the member direct rather than having to spend time liaising and, and paying off to the receiving scheme, especially if that receiving scheme 
is being unhelpful or, or un, is, is effectively unwilling or unable to accept the transfer or indeed doesn't exist anymore um, and getting advice early on that so you've got your plan b set up in advance ready for for managing that if the receiving scheme can't ex accept that also looking at well the practicalities around if you just simply can't manage to work out if someone's due uh, a top up or where to pay it to whether you can look at other options such as an escrow arrangement that sits outside the scheme where monies will be held to manage if claims do come out of the woodwork which would enable the trustees potentially to get comfortable that they could proceed to complete the wind up without having gone through the exercise in its entirety knowing that there's that as a form of protection if claims do come out of the woodwork obviously that 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 does depend on how comfortable the trustees can get that they can not take action but if they don't have data um available then actually it's, it's a lot easier for them to conclude well there's nothing they can reasonably do but there is that possibility and risk of claims coming out of the woodwork and escrow offers a protection employers might not like that they're, they're having to put funds aside in an escrow for that that that's not a, a, an efficient use of cash for them necessarily but it, it, it is an option although again you can also look at alternatives around insurance that this is a new area and, and insurance is still very much developing around this area though in terms of whether you know you can get cover for this risk and it, precisely what that cover will provide no that's interesting i guess um you know you said that um sponsors might not feel comfortable in terms of setting money aside in in escrow but of course if if there is a surplus to be returned from the scheme to the sponsor and it enables the majority of that surplus to be paid back to the sponsor then that they might be more willing or might actually be very happy um to to use that kind of mechanism to to deal with with that residual agreed. risk agreed it's in surplus scenarios I, I think escrow will will definitely be looked at more closely a lot of schemes aren't yeah, ideally you manage a buyout so that you don't end up in a surplus situation so that won't happen that frequently but if it does um it would definitely be something to look at so thank you very very much uh, Andrea, Michael, Rachel, for, for joining me for this podcast. I think trustees and sponsors alike will have benefited greatly from those gems of wisdom that, that you have given us today. Um, and to all of you that are watching and listening, we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Take care. Bye.